Howdy, all you poor saps. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Nasty Pasty Podcast, one of the scungiest and depraved podcasts out there on the World Wide Web. Well, not exactly, but I do try that hard. I'm Andy Roberts, a Welsh horror fan who's utterly obsessed with the idea of video nasties, a bunch of horror films that were listed by the UK government as being far too extreme for public tastes. Feeding the public a load of bullshit about how it was going to transmogrify our children into murderous beasts, the police were employed to seize this scourge directly from the shelves of VHS shops everywhere, rounding up the dealers and fining them or jailing them. This was quite a while ago now, and in true satirical fashion, most, if not all, of these offending films are now available to watch freely. So you might be wondering, therefore, what was the whole point of it? I do too, which is why I highlight that sentiment even further by looking at films from the same era, which were of the same ilk as the nasties, but somehow escaped prosecution. My usual tactic is to give you a complete synopsis of the plot before exploring the story, characters, themes and the effects of the film in terms of violence, gore, sex and threat. I then wander through the cast and crew for some memorable names and then focus on the actual UK VHS release, if any, during the video nasty phase, as well as its subsequent releases in terms of the censorship that the UK was subject to. It's virtually the same journey every week, except we just change our theme up. This week is a particularly close genre to my heart, as we're back on the humble slasher film. Any self-respecting horror fan will be aware of this one, and this week's theme is Mad Slashers, featuring titles that really depict the insane rage of the slasher killer. Tonight's film's a 1980s maniac, and 1981's Madman. So let's head straight into the first example, which is Bill Lustig's Maniac. A heavily breathing man stalks a young couple on the beach, just as the girl asks her boyfriend to go get some firewood. As he moves away, the intruder sneaks up behind the girl and cuts her throat with an open razor, strangling her boyfriend with piano wire when he returns. Suddenly awakening, Frank is relieved that it's just a nightmare, 
but as he gets up to get changed, his companion in bed is revealed to be a bloodied mannequin, with a strange shrine and countless other mannequins and dolls in his bedroom. Going out and walking the streets of New York, Frank encounters a prostitute who requires just one more John to make her rent. Accepting her offer, Frank books into the nearby hotel and requests her to model for him before getting down and dirty. Just as the session gets more heated, Frank suddenly snaps and squeezes her throat, strangling her to death. He runs to the toilet, vomiting and crying that he didn't want to kill her, just before he takes an open razor and cuts into her forehead, removing her scalp. Returning home with a new mannequin, Frank dresses it up in new female clothes and the prostitute's scalp, uncontrollably conversing with it in his head. Soon after, Frank dismantles a shotgun and hides the pieces inside a violin case, going outside and driving around in his car. Spotting a girl and guy getting into a car outside a disco club, he follows them as they park up near the Verrazano Bridge and proceeds to play hooky in the back seat. The girl notices Frank peeping at them and vehemently requests that they leave, only for Frank to leap on the car bonnet and fire the shotgun right into the guy's face, brutally killing him. He then turns the gun on the girl, watching the news reports about his killings when he returns home. He becomes increasingly disturbed, rambling on to his mannequin companion and handcuffing himself to it. Walking in the park the next day, Frank spots a young photographer called Anna and checks her bag to find out more about her. As night falls later, a young nurse finishes her shift and waits outside for her ride to pick her up, only to begin walking home when it appears that he hasn't turned up. She soon becomes aware of Frank following her and hurriedly rushes through a subway, only to become frightened when the train leaves without her. Managing to evade him and ducking into a nearby toilet, Frank refuses to give up pursuit and locates the toilet that she's hiding in, but seemingly doesn't notice her hiding place. Tensely checking if the coast is clear, the nurse slowly edges out of the bathroom and, laughing at the close call, refreshes her face at the sinks. As she rises back up, Frank is behind her, who rams a bayonet through her chest and subsequently scalps her too, refreshing his mannequin at home. Meanwhile, Anna is developing some photographs at home when Frank knocks on her door, having remembered her address. They discuss her photography, which focuses mainly on women, and Frank seems to find a connection with her beyond the normal, prompting him to ask her out to dinner. As they eat, Frank mentions his mother, who was taken from him in a car accident, but compares Anna to her, explaining he feels that she's just as pretty as her. Paying her a visit a few days later when she's doing a shoot, Frank gifts her with a teddy bear and meets Rita, one of Anna's models, who seems to stir up his murder lust all over again. Taking her mother's locket, Frank knocks at Rita's apartment later as she prepares a bath for herself and feigns finding it and returning it to her so that he can stealthily prop her door lock open. As she enters her bathtub and soaks for a moment, Frank enters her apartment and hides in the closet, jumping out at her when she passes by with a drink. Kidnapping her and taking her back to his apartment, he binds her to his bed and talks to her as though he knows her personally, referring to the hurt he received from her and showing his disgust for her interest in several men, despite him being the only one to love her. Eventually hinting that he thinks that she's his mother, he gets a switchblade out and convincing himself that she won't go away again, he plunges the blade into her chest, killing her before scalping her with a paper knife. Becoming ever more delusional, he stubs out his cigarette out on a mannequin, suggesting that that was his mother's preferred method of punishment if he didn't do as he's told. The next day, Frank calls Anna and suggests a night at the movies, but not before they attend Rita's funeral. On the way out, Frank suggests to Anna that they visit his mother's grave so that he can pay his respects. 
As he prays at the gravestone, he becomes noticeably disturbed and attacks Anna, chasing her through the cemetery. She manages to grab a shovel and strikes him in the arm, injuring him and escaping afterwards. Becoming distraught at letting her go, he then hallucinates his mother's voice has returned to haunt him, just as her corpse bursts from her grave and assaults his face. Proving to be an intense hallucination, Frank runs home and has a panic attack on the bed, which only worsens when the mannequins around him slowly seem to have been given life, moving towards him and attacking him with weapons, hacking off his arm and twisting his head from his body. As the sun rises, the police arrive at Frank's place, only to find the mannequins exactly where he left them, with Frank himself stabbed in the stomach by his own hand. As the detectives leave to get reinforcements... Frank's eyes open. Who is it? Yes, uh, my name is Frank Zito. He took my picture in the park. May I speak with you? Come in. It's amazing. I was just looking at a photo I took of you in the park. Really? Well, uh, it's a coincidence because what I wanted to uh, speak to you about. Uh, do you mind if I take a look? Certainly. Listen, um, listen, how come all your models are women? Oh, it's just something I'm interested in as a woman. In fact, this is my fourth series. It's called Woman 4. Mm -hmm. Not very original, is it? Well, it's not the title that matters that much. No, no. Listen, do you get to, uh, keep them all? Well, I'm hoping to sell them. I wouldn't. I I'd keep them forever. But, but why? I mean, part of my profession is to sell photographs. It's not all for art's sake, you know. I know, but why do you take pictures of women this way? I like to make them look beautiful. No, I think it's more to preserve them. You see, the beauty is already in the model. Frank, don't be silly. Listen, I'm the photographer, right? All right. So I should know what I'm doing, shouldn't I? I know, but to me, you know, things change. People die. But in a painting or a picture, they're yours forever. There's no way you can possess someone forever. Even in a photograph. There's no way. Well, I was noticing this picture of this old lady here. At one point in her life, she was someone's sister, someone's wife, someone's mother. And when the photographer took a picture, he had her the way he wanted her. She could never leave him. And she couldn't grow old, and she couldn't die. Tell me, Frank, what do you do for a living? Uh, I'm a painter. Yeah. Abstracts, some still lifes, some landscapes, you know, things like that. I'd love to see some of your work sometime. You would? I'd love to, yes. Listen, uh, Anna, I know this place over in New Jersey, you know? Yeah. Clams Casino, Italian mm -hmm. food. Mm-hmm. And, uh, would you like to have dinner? My Frank, you asking me for a date? You talking to me? I'm talking to you. I'd love to, yes, I really would. Give me five minutes and I'll be right with you. Great. Released in 1980 from William Bill Lustig, Maniac is a serial killer film with heavy slasher elements and psychological tones. Right from the get-go, Maniac wastes little time in establishing the grim, sleazy atmosphere with the required grungy, synthesised music pieces, long panning shots of random dolls and mannequins, establishing tableaus of greasy New York City streets, blazing neon lights, and of course, our main protagonist and serial murderer, Frank. But before we go into the nitty-gritty, let's first talk about how Maniac was made. 
Bill Lustig had directed several pornographic films in the 70s, and he wished to branch out into a different genre altogether. So, after deciding to collate some funding together, he put forward $30,000 from the profits he made on his 1977 film Hot Honey. Actor Joe Spinell put in $6,000, and producer Andrew W. Garoni put in $12,000, giving them a total of $48,000. After gambling on the stock market, this figure grew to 135000 and eventually the husband of Caroline Monroe brokered a deal to fund the remaining 200000 needed if Monroe was cast as the Dotaragonist. The production started filming in earnest in October of 1979, wrapping mid to late January of 1980, a shoot of merely 26 days. The first scenes to be filmed were those of Rita returning to her apartment and her bathtub, whilst the last scenes to be filmed were actually the film's ending of Frank's murder-slash-suicide nightmare. Due to the low budget, Lustig and the crew had to adopt a stringent code of guerrilla filmmaking, as they were shooting in New York but could ill afford the expensive city permits. Scenes were shot quickly and without much warning, most famously of which is the sequence where Tom Savini has his head blown off with a shotgun. The scene was filmed nearby the Verrazano Bridge, and Savini used live ammunition for the effect, leading to a crew member, Luke Walter, quickly driving off with the shotgun to avoid being caught by the police. The effect in question was actually a cast of Savini's head that he'd made previously for an unused project. It was filled with fake blood and some leftover food, and simply shot at for the desired effect. The shoulders of the dummy were actually the same prosthetic that he used in Dawn of the Dead, affectionately dubbed Boris. But after this film, he decided to get rid of it as it was far too damaged to use any further. Frank's car in the film, a 1970s Buick Electra, was simply purchased from a used car lot for $200, which was already in a bad state of disrepair. It was later damaged permanently when a camera shot of Anna and Frank in the car was affixed to the steering wheel, which permanently affected the steering, meaning that it was rendered useless afterwards. Both the Buick and Boris were subsequently sunk in the East River sometime after filming. Another instance of the hurried production was the montage sequence of Frank looking at Matt's shop window mannequins. Most of the crew were actually asleep, so these scenes were filmed by Luke Walter with Joe Spinell as a two-man team. In addition, most of the female victims, bar Monroe, were played by porn actresses in order to keep costs down even further. Onto the film itself, it's very apparent that this vision of the city and its inhabitants are essentially seen through Frank's maddened eyes. Zito is a rather pathetic character, who is prone to blubbering and breaking down over any sort of tangential link to his mother, who is inferred to have abused him significantly. This innate sadness eventually progresses to an intense rage, which he expresses by murdering the women who cross his path and scalping them. Well, I guess it is a horror film after all. The theme of maternal abuse is not exactly unique in horror films, nor in real-life occurrences of serial killers. But the world in which Frank inhabits is very starkly realised. It seems to be a world of perpetual darkness, considering that most of the action takes place at night, with very little daytime or sunlight present in the film at all. Even the locations with light are dim and sinister, but Frank quite happily inhabits these places. One of the only exceptions in the film is when Frank sees Anna for the first time, which is in broad daylight. More on Anna later, but it's rather telling that this one potential victim in particular metaphorically seems to brighten his day. Apart from the oppressive darkness, there's a sleazy voyeuristic element to the whole film, with Frank mainly looking at the world around him from a calculated distance. 
This is intrinsically linked to the behaviour of his mother, hinted to be a prostitute who had men over all the time, forcing Frank to hide in a closet and presumably watch as she earned their keep. As a result, there's a real focus on objectified beauty, rather than real beauty in Frank's life. He prefers the company of inanimate objects, such as dolls and mannequins, and he gets the most excited when his prostitute victim models for him as though she were from a magazine. Even the connection he forms with Anna is implicitly focused on her work, where she likes to take pictures of women to enhance their beauty. Frank believes, however, that capturing that beauty in photographic form is tantamount to possessing them, even beyond death. Unable to form meaningful emotional or physical relationships with women due to witnessing his mother's behaviour, Frank is most happy when a relationship is kept at a distance, with an almost artificial undertone of appreciating the way that women look. Anything beyond this, such as physical closeness, emotional resonance, or the merest hint of his mother's behaviour, causes him to snap, unable to forgive his mother's shortcomings and venting that anger out at his victims. Though he does show intense remorse after doing so, and he even expresses his desire not to harm others, Frank is still inescapably linked to his mother, unable to discard that emotional bond to her despite her abuse. This sentiment is rooted quite firmly in reality, really, as victims do tend to feel defensive and even loving of their abuser if it goes on for an extended period of time. This is further characterised by Frank's action post-murder, who most often scalps his victims to take their hair and dress up another mannequin. It's most likely another prominent feature of his mother. The hair symbolises that little bit of realism about the image that he obsesses over. He's constantly seeking to capture the perfect image of his mother without any of the negatives that he's unable to cope with. The mannequin, albeit bloodied up and wearing a severed scalp, is perfect in almost every way. It doesn't move, it retains its natural shape and beauty, and most importantly, it doesn't abuse Frank. This way, Frank can pretend the most angelic version of his mum will stick around forever, even though his damaged psyche cannot be placated forever, and he's eventually seduced again by real living women, who more immediately remind him of the maternal figure. Anna is somewhat different in that she's rather intelligent and able to tap into the same kind of objectified view of women, since she's a photographer. It's in these moments where Frank is extremely different to the hermit lifestyle and deranged loneliness that he otherwise portrays. With Anna, he's quite eloquent and well-spoken, quite enjoying the dynamic of adult conversation, and he sheepishly buys her gifts for being such a nice companion. It's quite sad, really, that this is the man he could have been had his childhood been not so appalling. Of course, it all falls apart when he gets physically close to his mother's grave, and her abuse is brought to the front all over again, causing him to lash out at Anna. She thankfully escapes, but the failure on Frank's part to get her increases the anguish he feels, so much so that even his mannequin companions are now no longer the loyal, statuesque representations of mother that they once were. Even they begin to start the cycle of abuse once more, tearing Frank to pieces in truly one of the most disturbing sequences that I've seen for a while. It's utterly chaotic and nightmarish in equal measure, leading to the conclusion in reality which is Frank having taken his own life. There's lots of mixed sentiment as well about this, as one side can be surmised that he's done it because his insanity has just reached its fever pitch, his mind literally resorting to fatal self-harm as he failed to grab another victim. But another more poignant conclusion is that Frank couldn't bear the idea that he was about to harm Anna, the one person who represented a way out for him, a redemption and absolution of both his crimes and his abuse. 
But in true slasher film style, however, Frank opens his eyes, sort of suggesting that there'll be a sequel. It never really materialised, but we'll talk more about that sequel later. In relation to other slasher pictures, Maniac is more firmly on the side of serial killer films, as the killer himself is the main protagonist. We see the film through his eyes, rather than from the perspective of a final girl, for example. While Anna sort of fills that role on paper, by nearly becoming a victim and then surviving, the film's plot doesn't really adhere to the slasher film template, and the character study of Mr Zito is exactly what you're here for, really. It's more in the vein of something like Taxi Driver or Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer than something like Friday the 13th. Some of the elements are retained, though, like the heavily breathing sounds of Frank stalking his victim, rather reminiscent of Michael Myers. There's the predominantly female cast of victims and the gore sequences, which are rather notorious. Special effects guy Tom Savini was really in his element here, already having done Friday the 13th the same year, so we're treated to a whole host of vicious murders like a throat slashing, we've got a strangulation, various scalpings, a shotgun blowing up a head, a bayonet stabbing through the chest, a rather sexualised switchblade stabbing, and in the finale we're treated to Frank having his limbs hacked off and his head twisted off in quite a nasty sequence. It's got pretty much everything you'd want from a slasher, but just with the added bonus of actually focusing on the killer and trying to understand why he's like he is. Being such a mix of different elements, though, actually works in Maniac's favour, as you can feel the influence of just so many things. There's a real Italian influence, for example, in the way that Frank's apartment is kept with the gaudy red curtains and ornate furnishings, similar to Suspiria. The huge amount of dolls and children's toys referencing Deep Red and the grotesque mannequins with scalps on them rather crudely harks back to something like Barva's Blood and Black Lace. Even the helicopter shots are reused from Argento's Inferno. As mentioned before, Frank's voyeuristic heavy breathing is similar to Michael Myers, and even Freddy Krueger in the opening of Nightmare on Elm Street, while the steadily tense scenes at Frank's apartment, involving increasingly loud innocuous sounds and a cabin fever-like madness, are similar to the material in Roman Polanski's Repulsion. Even the beginning sequence on the beach was purposefully inspired by Jaws, though with the antagonist on the beach rather than in the sea. There's even some influence from real-life killers as well, such as the shotgun murder being very similar to David Berkovich, who specifically shot victims in parked cars with a forty-four revolver. And even Frank's psychosis is very similar to Ed Gain, who was extremely disturbed in relation to his mother, who both murdered and mutilated corpses. Gain, of course, would also influence Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho as well, which Frank certainly has more than a few similarities with. After the film's reaction, Spinell wished to do an official sequel and starred in a 1986 short entitled Maniac 2, Mr. Robbie, as means to starting raising money for a full-length feature. It focused on the exploits of Mr. Robbie, played by Spinell, who was a children's TV host who murders terrible or abusive parents of the kids that he sees. Due to Spinell's death in 1989, however, the film's full-length version was never realised though the short is included in some special edition versions of Maniac. Joe Spinell was a rather prominent character actor famous for his imposing frame and subtle menace in his roles. Some of his most recognisable appearances are The Godfather Part 1 and 2 as the sinister Willie Chichi, and 1976's Taxi Driver, Rocky and Rocky 2, 1980's Cruising, but also he was the main antagonist in Maniac, Frank Zito. 
He was also in the Italian sci-fi cult film Star Crash and the video nasty The Last Horror Film, but his career ended when he tragically passed away in 1989 at the age of 52. The latter two of his mentioned filmography, though, are very memorable, as they also starred British actress Caroline Munro, his co-star in Maniac, who played Anna. We've encountered her a few times before on Nasty Pasty, when we covered Don't Open Till Christmas and Slaughter High. But I was also extremely lucky enough to interview her, and she's honestly wonderful to speak to. Anyone interested can find the interview on our backlog. Originally, Dario Argento's wife at the time, Daria Nicolodi, was due to play the role as Argento was lined up for a production role. Due to conflicts with 1980s Inferno, however, the pair had to drop out of the project. Kelly Piper played the unfortunate nurse chased through the subway. She later appeared in 1982's Vice Squad and the later cult movie Rawhead Rex. The prostitute killed at the hotel room was portrayed by actress Rita Montoni, whom we've actually spotted before on two films, 1980's The Children and the torture porn precursor Bloodsucking Freaks from 1976. Tom Savini, the gore maestro himself, played the guy who has his head brutally blown apart by a shotgun. More on him later, but his companion was played by Hyla Marrow, who cropped up later in 1982's Vigilante. The guy whose girlfriend gets her throat slit in the film's beginning was played by James L. Brewster, who'd appeared in The Deadly Spawn, while the hotel manager was played by director William Lustig himself. Now, William Bill Lustig directed only a few films, but he's regarded well within the horror exploitation community for his particularly grisly style. After 1980's Maniac, he directed 1982's Vigilante, Maniac Cop 1, 2 and 3, and 1996's Uncle Sam, after which he became solely a prolific producer, including of the remake of his film in 2012 starring Elijah Wood. He also had a very brief appearance in Army of Darkness as a fake shemp. The film was written by C.A. Rosenberg, who didn't do anything else at all, really, whilst joined by actor Joe Spinell, who worked to make his character as deranged as possible. Spinell also produced the film, along with Lustig, while another producer was Andrew W. Garoni, whose main bulk of credit centres on countless softcore adult films, as well as the 2012 remake of Maniac. Judd Hamilton also worked as a producer on this film, who later worked on the video nasty The Last Horror Film and had a small role in Luigi Cozzi's Star Crash. Lastly, there was John Packard, who produced Lustig's later movie Vigilante. The heavily synthesised soundtrack was done by Jay Chataway, who later worked on a lot of the Chuck Norris material like Invasion USA and Missing in Action, before going on to Maniac Cop, Red Scorpion, Star Trek The Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, Voyager and Enterprise. He also contributed a song to the remake of Poltergeist in 2015. Originally, continuing with the Italian influence, Lustig wanted Goblin, famous for their work with Dario Argento, but they were ultimately unavailable. Chataway did a superb job, however, as was the editing on the film, which was done by Larry Marinelli, who returned for Lustig's Vigilante, but also worked on Doris Wishman's A Night to Dismember. The film skipped the usual MPAA submission in the US, meaning that the film was released uncut with no rating, limiting the audience members to adults only. A hastily pre-cut and R-rated version was released a few months later for distribution in the south of the US, but in both forms, the film was subject to massive amounts of negativity. Critics universally hated the film, with Gene Siskel even walking out of the theatre after the shotgun murder, stating that it was impossible for the film to have redeemed itself after that. 
Actress Caroline Monroe, who was good personal friends with both Lustig and Spinell, would frequently hear of new controversies that the film was causing in the States, namely demonstrations and pickets outside cinemas from women's rights groups who felt that the film was far too misogynistic. Unbeknownst to Monroe, the film actually had a similar reaction in the UK when it was outright rejected for the cinema in 1981. A VHS version from Intervision followed in April of 1983 during the Video Nasty Scandal, and lo and behold, it was uncut as well. Bearing a similar minimal cover art in the style of Nasty's Last House on the Left and Cannibal Ferox, there was definitely some aura around the videotape, especially when Intervision were in so much trouble already for releasing no less than 12 offending films on the Nasty's lists. It's genuinely quite surprising, though, that Maniac didn't earn an official place on the Nasties list, especially as the film was rejected at the cinema, yet it had an uncut release on VHS. It is hardly surprising, though, to discover that the film was indeed seized during police raids in both Greater Manchester and Lancashire, so there was certainly an intent to have the film prosecuted. It's certainly a mystery, though, as to why it didn't go ahead. I assume it must have been simply because the DPP hadn't listed it, so they were just forced to return it. The VHS from Intervision disappeared in the wake of the Video Recordings Act, and it didn't resurface until 1998, where it was again rejected for a VHS release. Finally, in 2002, after much deliberation, the BBFC authorised Anchor Bay to release a version on DVD, but they subjected the film to 58 seconds of cuts, mostly to reduce the prostitute's strangulation to a minimum and removing the sexualised stabbing of Rita. This version is unfortunately the only version that we have in Britain, as the uncut version has yet to materialise here. If anyone's listening out there, I'm sure that lots of horror fans would want this grisly cult classic on their shelves in gloriously uncut form. Obviously, the US has Region 1 versions of it, so there's that option as well. So, that was Maniac. Let's delve into our next foray into slasher territory, Madman. campfire, a large group of councillors and campers relay a scary story about a local man, a farmer with a wife and two kids, who lived in an abandoned house near the summer camp. 
Known as a brute, he one day went into his bedroom and dismembered his wife with an axe before turning it on his children. The local townsfolk found out about this crime and publicly attacked the murderer, hanging him from a tree and disfiguring him with his own axe. In the morning, the murderer's body was missing, as were the corpses of his family. Legend now has it that he stalks the woods in search of more victims, able to appear upon the mere mention of his name, Madman Mars. One of the group, young teenager Richie, decides to shout out his name, only to be warned by the storyteller, head councillor Max, that it's real. Ending the story, Max leaves as the rest of the councillors, TP, Betsy, Ellie, Bill, Dave and Stacy, in charge of proceedings just as T.P. and Betty have an argument over the stories scaring the smaller kids, forcing Stacy to intervene. T.P. has his charges, Jimmy, Tommy and Richie, put out the campfire and follow him back, only for Richie to spot the outline of a long-haired man in a nearby tree. Following it to Mars's old house, he explores around while Stacy talks to Betsy about her issues with T.P., Meanwhile outside, Max and T.P. fool around trying to dislodge an axe from a stump, frowned upon by the camp's cook, Dippy, who's hopelessly drunk. As he realises that his bottle's empty, Dippy goes to grab another from the pantry, only to be caught by Mars, who slices his throat open with his long fingernails. Richie tries to leave the Mars house, whilst back at the councillor shack, Max leaves to go and retrieve some supplies, after which T.P. apologises to Betsy publicly for his behaviour. Afterwards, T.P. and Betsy make love whilst in a hot tub, all the while being watched by Mars, who soon turns his attention to Stacy, who struggles to climb up a steep incline. Reaching the staff cabin, Stacy joins Bill, Ellie and Dave near the fire, and they continue to freak each other out with freaky stories. T.P. soon finds out that Richie is still missing, volunteering to find him alone, whilst Ellie and Bill decide to camp near the lake to play Nookie. T.P. comes across the remains of their previous campfire whilst looking for Richie, only to be suddenly attacked by Mars who ties a noose around his neck and hangs him from a tree. Managing to climb up to the branch, Mars tugs on his legs, dropping him and snapping his neck. When T.P. doesn't return, Betsy informs Stacy and Dave about his disappearance, causing Dave to volunteer to search for him. As he searches, Mars removes the axe from the stump that Max and T.P. were fooling around with earlier and stalks Dave. Eventually, Dave discovers T.P.'s hanged corpse and is suddenly attacked and pursued by Mars, who swipes at him with an axe, eventually catching him and beheading him. Stacy shows concern and leaves Betsy to go out and find Ellie and Bill, whom she warns about the current issues before trying to locate a car. Having trouble starting it, she fiddles around and manages to get it moving, just slipping out of Mars's clutches. Back at the councillor's shack, Ellie and Bill decide to also go out and aid Stacy in the search, leaving Betsy alone to take care of the kids. While exploring the woods, Stacy spots a light in the distance and then comes across a body on the ground. Pulling it up, she's horrified to discover Dave's decapitated corpse and she runs off back to the car, which fails to start properly. Reluctantly getting back out to fix it, Stacy pops open the hood, failing to notice Madman Mars who has caught up with her. He climbs atop the vehicle and jumps down on the hood, instantly decapitating Stacy. Ellie and Bill arrive and do a sweep over the wooded area near the truck, only for Ellie to spot Mars hovering nearby Stacy's body. As she locates Bill, he safeguards her as they return to check out the truck, which is now empty. They get inside to try and head back, only for the same engine troubles to occur, leading to the grisly discovery of Stacy's head inside the engine. 
Panicking, they try to get the car started again, only for Mars to reach inside and drag Bill from the driver's seat, holding him in the air and snapping his back as Ellie watches in horror. Mars drags him back to his home, watched by a frightened Richie who's still wandering around the house. Going inside, Richie discovers Mars's victims in the basement, as Ellie barely makes it back to the campsite with an injured leg. Looking around for Betsy, she wanders around the buildings and instead bumps into Mars in a doorway. Fleeing from him, she manages to duck inside a virtually empty refrigerator and seems to hide from him successfully, only to get caught on her exit when Mars plunges an axe into her chest, seemingly killing her. Betsy, curious at everyone not returning, discovers Ellie's body whilst peering in a window and runs off to get a shotgun to protect herself. Returning back, she's surprised when Ellie's half-dead body appears at the window and she accidentally shoots her. As the kids begin to awaken, Betsy wastes no time in assembling all of them together to get on the bus, attempting to escape with them. During the journey, Mars tries to force his way into the vehicle. Vowing to find the others, Betsy has the eldest child drive out of danger and letting her off, she goes to look for her friends again, heading to Mars's home. As she explores the house, she becomes distracted by a noise and fires her gun, which allows Mars to knock the rifle from her hands and gouge her face open with his fingernails. Weakened, she's powerless to stop Mars dragging her into the basement and impaling her on a meat hook. In her dying throes, Betsy draws a hunting knife out and stabs Mars in the shoulder, causing him to knock over a candle and setting the whole house ablaze. As Max returns to the camp, he comes across a catatonic Richie, who exclaims that Madman Mars is real as he flashes back to all of the dead bodies in the basement. Uh, <coughs> I'll uh, make this short and sweet. Oh, good. <laughs> Thanks. Now I'll never stop. I think you all contributed something to the growth of the people as, as individuals and the kids in general that will stay with them the rest of their lives. Yeah, they'll never go out in the woods alone, ever again. <laughs> Max, I'd like to say something about the campfire. Sure, Betsy. I know how you enjoy telling stories around a fire, and I don't want to ruin it. But I'm concerned with the effect it has on the younger ones. They're in tears by the time it's over. I don't think it's good for them. Well, that's a good point. I never thought of that. I don't have any objections to excluding the younger kids from the campfire. Well, next year, I'll scare the hell out of only the older ones. Okay, Betsy? <laughs> I like to keep my staff happy. Within reason, of course. All right, I'm going into town to pick up the shutters from Sunny's and play some cards. Anybody need anything? Yeah, but you ain't going to find it at Sunny's. <laughs> Down, girl. You'll be back in the big city in a day or two. You can get anything you want there. Hold it. I'm getting a bit too old for this kind of time. I'm leaving. Bye. Oh, before I forget, that beer you've got hidden in the bottom of the refrigerator against orders, save me one. I'll be back in a couple of hours. Keep a sharp eye on the kids. Keep it. Don't talk. I'd like to get into something a bit more personal. Tonight, you all witnessed a scene between Betsy and me up at the campfire that should have never happened. I'd like to publicly apologize to Betsy and to the rest of you for subjecting you to my petty and selfish attitude. That's it, folks. I propose a toast. To friends and friendship, to love and lovers, 
May you always have more than you need. Madman sprang into life from the input of two guys, Joe Giannone and Gary Sales, two friends who met in Richmond College where they'd collaborated on various shorts. Towards the late 70s, John Carpenter's Halloween was raking it in at the box office, providing the essential template for the slasher picture. Giannone and Sales were too passionate to resist this rising wave and decided to make their own contribution to the genre, focusing on the urban legend of Cropsey. It's not exactly known when the urban legend of Cropsey began, but the first instances of the name began appearing in colonial times. Based primarily in New York, the tale focuses on a man called Cropsey, who as the result of a camp prank gone wrong, becomes disfigured and bitter. Returning to summer camps, Cropsey lurks around in the woods, brandishing an axe or a hook, committed to murdering young children who stray too far into his territory. The legend took a rather bizarre turn in reality after a real-life kidnapping and murder case involving American Andre Rand was linked to the Cropsey maniac with a 2009 documentary. Sales had heard the legend himself as a child and felt that it was the perfect choice to replicate in a slasher picture. They both started work on a script, initially entitled Madman The Legend Lives, and eventually attracted an investor, Sam Marion, who'd also spotted the lucrative potential of a movie in the vein of John Carpenter's film. By the turn of 1980, the project was ready to start filming, as they'd secured enough funding, only to suddenly hear of Tony Malum's The Burning, which had just gone into pre-production. Infamous in the UK for being a video nasty, The Burning was also explicitly based on the Cropsey urban legend, and the film's plots resembled each other too much to continue work as they were. To that end, Madman was put on temporary hold in order to rewrite the script. In order to reduce the similarities, the Cropsey character was dropped completely, and instead the legend of Madman Mars was devised. An abusive and callous farmer, Mars had a wife and two children, but one fateful night he returns home and dismembers his entire household. Getting lynched by the townspeople, Mars strangely disappears and becomes an urban legend in the town, reported to haunt the woodlands and kill any who mention his name. With the new script signed off, Giannone and Sales realised that they needed to scope out a potential location as the warm summer months were on their way out. After failing to secure a horse riding school in upstate New York, the filmmakers eventually found Fish Cove in Long Island, which was a fully equipped summer camp. Consisting of both a large house and 20-plus cabins to film in, the filmmakers were overjoyed to find it very accommodating, especially as room and board was relatively cheap due to filming starting out of season. After casting, the film was ready to go, though the film was renamed to Plain Madman after a Frank Sinatra tour was announced with the same side moniker of The Legend Lives. By the time that principal photography began in November, the summer had long since gone, and the colder months of fall and winter were colliding, reducing most of the leaves to their autumnal brown colours. Like John Carpenter's Halloween, the crew were forced to find leaves and paint them green to maintain the image that summer was in season. This was not the only concession on the set, as several issues had cropped up, one of which was the opening segment at the campfire, which was, trigger warning here for Johnny Larkin, problematic, as Tony Fish, who played Teepee, was given only one evening to remember that weird song that he sings. This was because the shooting schedule was drastically altered when the makeup for Madman Mars was delayed. On another night, November 15th, 1980 to be exact, the pregnant wife of Paul Ellers, who played Madman Mars, went into labour, forcing Ellers to drive immediately from the set in full Madman Mars makeup. 
Upon arrival, he caused a bit of disruption due to his appearance, and a receptionist nurse was utterly convinced that he was horribly injured and tried to redirect him to an emergency room. Their son Jonathan was born healthily after the initial mix-up. Producer Gary Sales also had a near miss when shooting stills for the film, as during the scene when Betsy fires accidentally at Ellie's body through the window, the shattered glass flung a large piece directly between his eyes. Due to the glass being of a synthetic nature, though, he was relatively uninjured afterwards. Filming stopped for a day when the news of John Lennon's murder spread on December 8th, and there was also an incident of an intruder wandering onto the set, witnessed by several of the cast and crew. Ellers was asked by the director to check out the immediate area where the intruder was spotted again, but nothing was found after he looked around for a bit. After Ellers checked it, though, the intruder mysteriously never returned. The real spirit of the slasher film is felt in Madman, with a real passion to deliver a spooky story with the required gore and characters. It's not necessarily unique or groundbreaking in any areas, but it turns in a solid performance in the bloodletting and killer departments, earning it a good place in the annals of the slasher picture. The legend of Madman Mars is actually quite a novel combination of the Cropsy Maniac legend with the generalised stereotype of what rural fears would manifest as. Since the majority of the main protagonists are city folks, it makes sense that their worst nightmare would be a country bumpkin gone mad. Due to form, Mars is a stereotypical hick farmer, who's known for his brutality towards his family and his surly, off-kilter attitude to the townspeople. Dressed in dungarees with madly unkempt hair and a disfigured face due to the old-school lynching he receives, Mars represents that rural vision of everything that can go wrong. Unchecked aggression, odd rituals and practices, and social isolation resulting in hostility to outsiders. Obviously, he pulls the first punch by reenacting Ronald DeFeo of Amityville fame by murdering his entire family with an axe. After his disappearance, Mars enters the local folklore as kind of a legend, but like most horror films of this nature, the campfire story has more to it than just marshmallow toasting chills. It's quite similar to Michael Myers in a sense, who has a fixed identity in reality, but becomes more of a spectre or boogeyman after a past incident. In Mars's case, he's almost entirely spectral now, as his appearance and method of arriving is not exactly realistic. His face is completely disfigured, his hair is a mad swathe of cloudy fur, and his large imposing frame belies a supernatural quickness. Not able to just appear at random, he's summoned by his name being mentioned above the level of a whisper, which is used by the immature Richie as a way to goof off. But of course, it also has the opposite effect, and Madman Mars is unleashed upon the summer camp to commit his murderous acts. Notably though, Richie actually isn't one of Madman Mars's victims, so the act of actually being able to summon him, he's almost punished for by being forced to watch everyone else around him die in vicious ways. Apart from being a memorable villain, the rest of the characters are also quite interesting. For the most part, they're a real mixed bunch of characters, with some rather mature for their age, and the majority of them are actually quite adult overall. They're certainly not the same sort of hijinks that you'd expect from other films, with no drug use, only a fleeting reference to alcohol, and any sex is actually quite sensitively handled. I can't say how refreshing it is really to have a summer camp slasher with this level of grown-up protagonists. Betsy is our final girl character here, but she's really different in several ways. She's got her head screwed on quite well, and she certainly isn't going to be taken advantage of by the lechy advances of TP. 
She also has the initiative of when trouble starts to round up the children and have them escape the area via bus. And she's brave enough to go back to save any of her friends who may be alive. While this plan does go awry when she's ultimately killed by Mars, she still manages to be tough in her death throes, stabbing Mars in the shoulder and causing his house to be burnt down after he knocks over a candle. She's the perfect martyr, really, in the same way that Helen from Candyman dies in order to destroy the legend once and for all. Teepee seems to be painted at first as a bit of a dick, but he actually mans up and apologises. I mean... Wow, there's no way that actually admitting to dickish behaviour in public and apologising would actually feel comfortable to a character in a Friday the 13th film, for example. Nor would the more sensitively filmed love scene between T.P. and Betsy have a place in the more basic slashes. There's very little nudity and there's a focus on the tenderness and closeness of the two, which again, it doesn't really translate that frequently into other slashes. The gorgeous Bill was a bit of a distraction to me because I had a massive crush on him, but even the shenanigans between him and Ellie were sweet more than anything else. Plus, he likes the sound of burning wood, which I admire as well. Thanks. I love to feel the flames devour the wood. Who says there's no beauty in destruction? Ellie is very timid and softly spoken, and by heck, she evokes so much sympathy too. I found her far too harmless and sweet to be the type of person to be in a slasher film, so I was really gutted when she was killed, especially as she receives quite a large chase sequence for quite a long time. I really was rooting for her to survive. Dave actually doesn't make that much of an impression, really, but he gives a memorable exit regardless, whilst Stacy is both confident and sassy in equal measure. And her friendship with Betty is also quite sweet and personal, so it was gutting that she died as well. Most of the protagonists in this film are sweet in the way that slasher film fodder just usually aren't. So it's much better in that regard that the victims are not just your usual asshole teenagers. Madman is also one of those instances where the reviews can really be misleading... I'll admit I actually fell prey to some of the lower rated reviews of Madman that commonly complained that the film lacks any real explicit gore and it features mostly off-screen deaths. So going into it this way of thinking, however, I was actually pleasantly surprised and even enthralled that this was actually not really true. While it's not exactly a massive bloodbath, it's certainly not shy to throw some impressive effects about, even in the opening sequence where Mars dismembers his family. His wife getting beheaded was achieved by filling a condom full of fake blood and then covering that in a wig and splattering it with an axe. Quite effective, really, for such a cheap solution. Dippy gets his throat torn out in a very effective sequence, while T.P. gets hung several times before having his neck snapped. The actor actually looks realistically dead during these sequences, which was actually due to actor Tony Fish putting a rubber band around his neck to simulate the pale face of being suffocated. It's incredibly effective, though director Giannone was panicked that this approach was going to result in Fish going unconscious in the middle of a take. Dave gets decapitated off-screen, after quite a protracted chase, but while we don't see this in real time, Stacy discovers the grisly aftermath, which is pretty damn well done. Stacy then gets quite an interesting death, where she's decapitated while looking inside a car hood to repair it. Mars jumps down on it, crushing her and taking her head clean off. You don't get that many car-based deaths like this in Slashers, though the video nasty Home Sweet Home actually did this death first. But unlike that one, which was badly shot and bloodless to boot, Madman really brings the good stuff and wrings a lot of tension from this scene. 
when Ellie and Bill investigate afterwards, Mars kills Bill by breaking his back, which to me was probably the least effective in the film, as it just looks like he's holding him above his head, really. Ellie, unfortunately, because I really liked her, is given quite an extended chase sequence before Mars plunges an axe into her chest, which was pretty nasty to see. She then gets shot by Betsy accidentally when she hears the commotion, but Betsy gets quite a nasty death herself, which is pretty much the iconic meat hook scene from Texas Chainsaw Massacre, though it's actually explicit in this version. She also gets quite a nasty gash in her face for her trouble, so the suggestion of this film not being gory at all is a bit silly. I was daft enough to fall for it, but it did endear me to it more when I got to those scenes, so possibly it was a good thing after all. Madman's certainly got the goods. It's got some spooky woodland summer camp setting, which is always good. It's got some really decent characterizations who don't necessarily annoy the hell out of you. There's a villain who's fun and frightening in equal measure, and it's got some really memorable gore sequences to boot. It's the whole package, really, and it certainly deserves a space on your shelf next to The Burning and Friday the 13th. So, just go out and get it. Sort of final girl Betsy was played by Indiana-born actress Galen Ross. In this case, though, she was under the pseudonym of Alexis Dubin. Ross was mostly iconically famous for her role as Francine in George Romero's genre-baking Dawn of the Dead, but she also starred in 1982's Creepshow as well before she retired her four-year acting stint permanently. She's later gone on to producing, writing and directing in all sorts of media, in most recent years helming several documentaries like Killing Krasner, Beijing Spring and Title Shot. Stacy was played by Harriet Bass, who later popped up in 1989's An Empty Bed, while the harried Ellie was played by actress Jan Clare, who later performed in Star Trek Voyager and The King of Queens. Clare was originally just assisting the casting director for this film, and she filled in the role when the original actress dropped out. I'm kind of glad she did, though, because she really brings something nice to the character. The gorgeous hunk Bill was played by actor Alex Murphy, who unfortunately did very little else on American TV, instead playing various roles in Polish TV programmes, and later going on to direct an Asian version of the play Seminar, which premiered in the Philippines. Vincent Price was originally considered for the role of Max, but as the film was non-union, they assumed that he'd decline the role automatically. Michael Sullivan, who played the very brief role of Dippy, was actually a visual effects artist who worked on Star Trek V The Final Frontier and the 1986 version of Little Shop of Horrors. Finally, there was Paul Ellers who played Madman Mars. He was responsible for also the opening and closing credit illustrations. Director Joe Giannone really didn't do anything else in the film world other than assist with the director of the Clonus Horror in 1979. But quite frankly, after bringing Madman to life, I don't think he really needed to do much else. It's an extraordinary achievement, especially with his partner in crime, Gary Sales, who helped produce and write the film in tandem with Giannone. Sales has had a little bit more success in the business, becoming an assistant director on many features like Vampire's Kiss, Jersey Girl, Just Cause, and 2013's The Girl on the Train, which is not the Emily Blunt film. Stephen Horlick did the soundtrack for the film, rather oddly really, because solely afterwards he became involved with mainly children's TV programmes. James Lemo did the cinematography, and we literally covered Lemo last week when we did Miss 45, while the editor, Daniel Lewenthal, is also a familiar face from when we covered Mother's Day and Friday the 13th, The Final Chapter. 
The special effects on the film were done by a mix of talents, such as Johan Hansen, who worked on Nightmares in a Damaged Brain, William DePaolo, who worked on 1989's Hell High, and Rob E. Holland, who worked on The House on Sorority Row and 1985's Tenement. There was also Matt Vogel, who was mentioned just last week on Miss 45. Lastly, the assistant editor on the film was Elizabeth Kling, who went on to become a prominent editor on stuff like 1998's Practical Magic and the Netflix show The Killing. Madman was quite notable in that it wasn't picked up by a major studio upon release, meaning that its cinematic exhibition was promoted almost entirely through word of mouth. It premiered in Albuquerque in 1981 before opening in Delaware the following year. Holding its own against studio-backed rivals, the film garnered enough money to become a successful sleeper hit and eventually became a popular home video release. The film also passed uncut in the UK for a release in November of 1981, with a VHS release following from video film organisation in the next year. In 1982, of course, the nasties panic was already stirring, so police raids had already begun in earnest. And guess what, folks? Yes, Madman was seized by police forces despite not being a nasty, with the majority of the seizures happening in Hampshire. This was presumably because it was a slasher film, very similar to the premise of Bonafide Nasty, The Burning. It also probably compounded the issue that video film organisation were already in trouble for releasing Naked Fist and the haunted house movie The Evil, both of which were nasties. The fact that the film had passed uncut for the cinema probably made the possibility of prosecution nil, so the police handed it back. Rather silly as the VHS disappeared after the whole Thanos-like snap of the Video Recordings Act, which automatically rendered all films without certificates illegal to sell anyway. The film actually didn't surface until 2002, where it received an uncut release on DVD, and it's since been remastered for a Blu-ray release from Arrow Video in 2015, with a whole host of tasty added goodies. And that's all for this week, guys. Sorry that the episodes have been delayed a lot recently. My job has changed up my usual routine quite significantly, so from now on, Nasty Pasty episodes are going to be released on Saturdays, just to give me that extra bit of time. As is the usual case, though, I love talking about the films that I cover, as well as horror films in general, so please do get in touch through the usual channels of Facebook and Twitter. Let me know your thoughts. I love chatting, and I don't bite. Next Saturday I'll be bringing another episode out, and we're still going to be focusing on slasher pictures, this time backwards slashers. The stalk and slash sequences, literally in the back of beyond of nowhere, covering two 1981 blood letters, Just Before Dawn, and Scream, which is also known as The Outing. But until next time though, try not to go mad waiting for the next episode. Good boo! (laughs) 